Daring leadership being a learner and getting it right. There are three strategies that I've seen work to transform always knowing into always learning. First, name the issue. It's a tough conversation, but clear is kind. I'd like for you to work on your curiosity and critical thinking skills. You're often quick with answers, which can be helpful, but not as helpful as having the right questions, which is how you'll grow as a leader. We can work together on this. Knowers often have a lot of people talking behind their backs, and that's unkind. Second, make learning curiosity skills a priority. Third, acknowledge and reward great questions and instances of I don't know, but I'd like to find out, as daring leadership behaviors. The big shift here is from wanting to be right to wanting to get it right. After these sections on rumbling with vulnerability, we are going to break down the skills and tools for curiosity and learning. 6. Armored Leadership Hiding behind cynicism Cynicism and sarcasm are first cousins who hang out in the cheap seats. But don't underestimate them and dash they often leave a trail of hurt feelings, anger, confusion, and resentment in their wake. I've seen them bring down relationships, teams, and cultures when modeled by people at the highest levels and or left unchecked. Like most hurtful comments and passive aggressiveness, cynicism and sarcasm are bad in person and even worse, when they travel through email or text. And, in global teams, culture and language differences make them toxic. I mean, the word sarcasm is from the Greek word sarcasine, meaning to tear flesh. Tear. Flesh. In a world roiled by incessant and tumultuous change, swapped by boatloads of fear and anxiety and rampant feelings of scarcity, cynicism and sarcasm are easy and cheap. In fact, I'd say that they're worse than armor m we use cynicism and sarcasm as get out of contributing free cards. Daring leadership modeling clarity, kindness, and hope the antidote to sarcasm and cynicism is threefold. 1. Staying clear and kind. 2. Practicing the courage to say what you mean and mean what you say. Cynicism and sarcasm often mask anger, fear, feelings of inadequacy, and even despair. They're a safe way for us to send out an emotional trial balloon, and if it doesn't go over well, we make it a joke and make you feel stupid for thinking it was ever something different. 3. If what's under cynicism and sarcasm is despair, the antidote is cultivating hope. According to the research of C.R. Snyder, hope isn't a warm and fuzzy feeling, he actually defines it as a cognitive emotional process that has three parts. This is a process that most of us, if we're lucky, are taught growing up. Though it can be learned at any time, the three parts are goal, pathway, and agency. We can identify a realistic goal, I know, where I want to go, and then we can figure out the pathway to get there, even if it's not a straight line and involves a plan B and scrappiness, I know I can get there, because I'm persistent and I will keep trying in the face of setbacks and disappointment. Agency is belief in our ability to stay on that path, until we've arrived, I know I can do this. Again, while a cynic might argue that someone who clings to hope is a sucker, or ridiculously earnest, this type of armor typically comes from pain. Often, people's cynicism is related to despair. As the theologian Rob Bell explains, despair is the belief that tomorrow will be just like today. That is a devastating line. The problem with cynicism and sarcasm is that they are typically system and cultural-wide m-it's just so easy to take shots at other people. As brave leaders, it is essential not to reward or allow it. Reward clarity and kindness and real conversation, and teach hope instead. 7. Armored leadership using criticism as self-protection As Roosevelt said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. Open, honest discussion, in which everyone feels free to offer suggestions and contribute, stimulates creativity. But innovation is hindered by allowing criticism from the cheap seats and dash from those who aren't willing to get down into the arena. There are two forms of criticism that can be a little harder to recognize, nostalgia and the invisible army. Sometimes when a new idea hits the table, the knee-jerk reaction is that's not how we do it or we've never done it that way. People use history to criticize different thinking. We can also use the invisible army, we don't want to change course, or we don't like the direction you're taking the project. I hate the invisible army, and if you use it with me I will drill. You down on exactly who makes up your we. On more than one occasion, 
Chaz has had to stop me from saying what? You got a mouse in your pocket? Voicing and owning our concern is brave. Pretending that we represent a lot of folks when we don't is cheap seat behavior. Criticism often arises from fear or feelings of unworthiness. Criticism shifts the spotlight off us and onto someone or something else. Suddenly we feel safer. And better than. Daring leadership making contributions and taking risks at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of my life, I want to say I contributed more than I criticized. It's that simple. If you find yourself leading a team or culture in which criticism outplays contribution, make a conscious and resolute decision to stop rewarding the former. In fact, turn contribution into a rumble skill. In our company, you aren't allowed to criticize without offering a point of view in return m If you're going to tear something down, you have to offer a specific plan for how you would rebuild it to make it stronger and more substantial. In fact, even if there's nothing to criticize, we still require everyone who comes into any meeting to come with a prepared point of view and then share it. This supercharges contribution and puts everyone into the arena where the stakes are high. Your point of view can shift as new data emerge, but you still have to participate and risk a little dirt and blood on your face. The people who count are the people who are putting themselves out there and making contributions, cheap seats be damned. 8. Armored leadership using power over in a 1968 speech given to striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Reverend Martin Luther King, J.R. Yen defined power as the ability to achieve purpose and effect change. This is the most accurate and important definition of power that I've ever seen. The definition does not make the nature of power inherently good or bad, which aligns with what I've learned in my work. What makes power dangerous is how it's used. Organizational life is inherently hierarchical, with very few exceptions. Those at the top hold a majority of the power, thanks to their proximity to the ultimate power holder, the CEO, founder, president, or board of directors, m-the higher up you are, the more likely you are to have access to the meetings behind closed doors, the private spaces, where the biggest decisions are discussed and made. Hierarchy can work, except when those in leadership positions hold power over others m-when their decisions benefit the minority and oppress the majority. What's perhaps most insidious in power over dynamics is that those who are powerless typically repeat the same behavior when the tables are turned and they are promoted into power. We see this in hazing rituals, and we see it in the perpetuation of policies that do not support the disenfranchised. Why should I care about young working mothers when nobody cared about me? The phrase power over is typically enough to send chills down spines when someone holds power over us, the human spirit's instinct is to rise, resist, and rebel. As a construct it feels wrong, in the wider geopolitical context it can mean death and despotism. Daring leadership using power with, power to, and power within in their publication making change happen, power, just associates, a global interdisciplinary network of activists, organizers, educators, and scholars, defines three variations of power within the context of social justice and activism. They are equally helpful in organizations, as they present pathways where team members can maintain their own agency and recognize their own sources of power, in a way that ladders up to the greatest good. In our culture, we often talk about empowering people, but it's a nebulous concept that's difficult to define. What does that actually mean? I think these three elements make clear the work we need to do. Power with has to do with finding common ground among different interests in order to build collective strength. Based on mutual support, solidarity, collaboration, and recognition and respect for differences, power with multiplies individual talents, knowledge, and resources to make a larger impact. Power to translates to giving everyone on your team agency and acknowledging their unique potential. It is based on the belief that each individual has the power to make a difference, which can be multiplied by new skills, knowledge, awareness, and confidence. Power within is defined by an ability to recognize differences and respect others, grounded in a strong foundation of self-worth and self-knowledge. When we operate from a place of power within, we feel comfortable challenging assumptions and long-held beliefs, pushing against the status quo, and asking if there aren't other ways to achieve the highest common good. 9. Armored leadership hustling for your worth, when people don't understand where they're strong, 
and where they deliver value for the organization or even for a single effort, they hustle. And not the good kind of hustle. The kind that's hard to be around, because we are jumping in everywhere, including, where we are not strong or not needed, to prove we deserve a seat at the table. When we do not understand our value, we often exaggerate our importance in ways that are not helpful, and we consciously or unconsciously seek attention and validation of importance. We put more value on being right than on getting it right. It creates franticness instead of calm cooperation. Daring leadership. Knowing your value daring leaders sit down with their team members and have real rumbles with them about the unique contributions they make, so that everyone knows where they are strong. Remember too that sometimes we overlook our own strengths, because we take them for granted and forget that they are special. I'm a strong storyteller, the provenance of my upbringing M-I sometimes forget that I'm uniquely equipped to do this, because it's easy for me. Tuck your team members in around the areas, where they quickly achieve flow M-Those are typically, where they are particularly primed to contribute value. As Ken Blanchard, the author of the 1982 best-selling leadership guide The One Minute Manager, explains, catch people doing things right. It's much more powerful than collecting behaviors that are wrong. Getting clear on our value and our team members' values will revolutionize our company and create lanes where none might have existed before m instead of a 10-person race. We start to develop a coordinated relay in which team members baton toss to each other's strengths instead of vying to run the whole stretch alone. Once everyone understands their value, we stop hustling for worthiness and lean into our gifts. 10. Armored leadership leading for compliance and control note, the compliance we are talking about is not legal, safety, or privacy compliance or organizational compliance, for example, vetting partners, wearing a hairnet, setting the alarm code on your way out, or putting in a vacation request with two weeks advance notice. The armor of compliance and control is normally about fear and power. When we come from this place, we often engage into armored behaviors. 1. We reduce work to tasks and to-dos, then spend our time ensuring that people are doing exactly what we want, how we want it M-dash and then constantly calling them out when they are doing it wrong. The armor of compliance and control leads us to strip work of its nuance, context, and larger purpose, then push it down for task completion, all while using the fear of getting caught as motivation. Not only is this ineffective, it shuts down creative problem-solving, the sharing of ideas, and the foundation of vulnerability. It also leaves people miserable, questioning their abilities, and even desperate to leave. The less people understand how their hard work adds value to bigger goals, the less engaged they are. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of failure and frustration. 2. When we operate from compliance and control, we also have a tendency to hold on to power and authority, and push only responsibility down. This leads to huge alignment issues for people. They've been asked to do something that they don't actually have the authority to accomplish. They're not set up for success, so they fail. This just reinforces our power and resentment loop, I knew I should have done it myself. I'll be responsible for this, you just do these small tasks that you can handle versus let's dig into how we could have set you up for success. I know I have a part. Daring leadership cultivating commitment and shared purpose daring leaders, even in compliance-driven and highly structured industries like banking, healthcare, and the food industry, create and share context and color. They take the time to explain the why behind strategies, and how tasks link to ongoing priorities and mission work. Rather than handing down black and white mandates stripped of story, they hold themselves responsible for adding texture and meaning to work and tying smaller tasks to the larger purpose. We used to utilize the Apple Dream model, appointing someone as the directly responsible individual for a specific task and recording their duty in the meeting minutes. But what we learned is that despite the team members' willingness to own it and be held accountable for executing, they didn't always have the authority to be successful. We are currently switching to a task approach, the accountability and success checklist. 1. TM-Who owns the task? 2. AM-Do they have the authority to be held accountable? 3. SM-Do we agree that they are set up for success, time, resources, clarity? 4. CM-Do we have a checklist of what needs to happen to accomplish the task? 
We also borrowed the scrum technique of what does not look like, when we assigned tasks, responsibilities, and deliverables. It was a huge improvement for us, but we needed to tweak it, because it didn't address the need for tying deliverables to our purpose. For example, I'm out of town with my colleagues Murdoch and Barrett facilitating a daring leadership workshop. I asked them to collect one role-play scenario from everyone participating in our two-day training, while I'm meeting with the CEO. I want to use these scenarios the next day. Later that evening, they slide a folder stuffed with handwritten scenarios under my hotel door. I wake up the next morning and panic. Now I have to sort through them and type them up. I'm frustrated with Murdoch and Barrett, and they have no idea why. The next time, I ask for the same thing, but Murdoch replies with sure. What does Don look like? I say, please type them up, and you and Barrett should pick three that are specific enough to be meaningful but general enough to apply across the group. It would be helpful if I could get them before 8 p.m. so I can review them tonight. Huge improvement. But wait ellipsis points. Same scenario, but instead of saying sure. What does Don look like? Murdoch says sure. Let's paint Don. Rather than slinging directives West Wing walk and talk style, we find Barrett and talk for five minutes. I say, here's my plan. I want to collect scenarios from the participants today so we have new role plays for the group tomorrow. I don't want to reuse the ones we brought and used today. They're really struggling with these hard conversations, and the more specific the scenarios are to their issues and culture, the more helpful the role playing will be. My plan is to have you collect them and sort through them tonight, looking for ones that are specific but have broad appeal. I'd like y'all to type up three of them and make copies. Instead of breaking the group into pairs, I want to do tribes with one person observing and supporting. So, if we have three role plays for each group, they can each take a turn. Murdoch and Barrett think about it for a minute, then Barrett says, One issue is that everyone here today is from operations. Tomorrow is the marketing team. Will that affect the relatability of the role plays? Me, damn it. It totally changes what I'm thinking. Thank you. Paint done. For us, it's significantly more helpful than what does done look like, because it unearths stealth expectations and unsaid intentions, and it gives the people who are charged with the task tons of color and context. It fosters curiosity, learning, collaboration, reality checking, and ultimately success. One more scenario. Ben, hey, Breen. Please pull all of the invoices together for me by 4 o'clock. Breen, okay. Two hours later. Breen, here you go. Ben, what is this? Breen, it's your invoices. Ben, I needed them back to 2005, and in date order. Now I'm not ready for my meeting with the Kfo. Breen, how was I supposed to know that? Ben and Breen are very frustrated. Paint done and task. Ben, hey, Breen. Please pull all of the invoices together for me by 4 o'clock. Breen, okay. Paint done for me. Ben, pull everything back to 2005, and put them in date order. Breen, that's the whole picture? Ben, yeah. I need to track the expenses for two books. Breen, wait. I don't understand. We didn't track expenses on invoices before 2007. You'll need separate receipts. Ben, can you get those two? Breen, yes, but not by four. What specifically do you need for your meeting? Paint done. Ben, I'm trying to make the point that the shift in how we format our invoices actually changed expense categorizations. Breen, I don't think you need to pull everything. There's a better way to do that. And I can get it done and put it in a graph for you by four. Ben, thanks so much. That would be awesome. What support do you need from me to get this done? Anything that you can think of that will get in your way? Breen, I'll need to clear my plate for the next two hours. Ben, I'll take care of that, if you'll jump on it. Breen, you got it. Ben, I really appreciate it. Task, the accountability and success checklist. 1. Task M-Breen owns the task. 2. Accountability M-Ben has given Breen the necessary authority to be held accountable. 3. Success M-Their conversation ensured that Breen is set up for success, in terms of time, resources, clarity. 4. Checklist M-Check. We want people to share our commitment to purpose and mission, not to comply, because they're afraid not to. 
that's exhausting and unsustainable for everyone. Leaders who work from compliance constantly feel disappointed and resentful, and their teams feel scrutinized. Compliance leadership also kills trust, and, ironically, it can increase people's tendency to test what they can get away with. We want people to police themselves and to deliver above and beyond expectations. Painting done and using a task approach cultivates commitment and contribution, giving team members the space and the trust to stretch and learn and allowing joy and creativity to be found in even the small tasks. 11. Armored leadership weaponizing fear and uncertainty In times of uncertainty, it is common for leaders to leverage fear and then weaponize it to their advantage. Unfortunately, it's been an easy formula throughout history and dash in politics, religion, and business and dash that, if you can keep people afraid, and give them an enemy who is responsible for their fear, you can get people to do just about anything. This is the playbook for authoritarian leaders here and around the globe. In the short term it's relatively easy for leaders to stir up scarcity and promise to deliver more certainty with easy answers and a common enemy to blame. But in the face of complex problems, that certainty is quite literally impossible to fulfill. Daring and ethical leaders fight against this brand of leadership. Daring leadership acknowledging, naming, and normalizing collective fear and uncertainty in the midst of uncertainty and fear, leaders have an ethical responsibility to hold their people in discomfort and dash to acknowledge the tumult but not fan it, to share information and not inflate or fake it. Daring leaders acknowledge, name, and normalize discord and difference without fueling divisiveness or benefiting from it. When we are managing during a time of scarcity or deep uncertainty, it is imperative that we embrace the uncertainty. We need to tell our teams that we will share as much as we are able, when we are able. We need to be available to fact-check the stories that our team members might be making up, because in scarcity we invent worst-case scenarios. We need to open up the room for rumbling around vulnerability. There is incredible relief and power in naming and normalizing fear and uncertainty. We have to find the courage to look back at the people who are looking at us for leadership and say, this is difficult. There are no simple answers. There is pain and fear that would be easy to unload on others M-dash but that would be unfair and out of our integrity. We will walk through this in a way that makes us feel proud. It will be hard, but we will do it together. 12. Armored leadership rewarding exhaustion, as a status symbol and attaching productivity to self-worth I wrote about this armor in my 2010 book, The Gifts of Imperfection, at a time of cultural crisis around busyness and sleep deprivation. Things might be moderately better now and dash there's definitely a growing awareness that insufficient sleep contributes to diabetes, heart disease depression, and even fatal accidents um, dash but we still struggle as a society around pegging our self-worth to our net worth. When worthiness is a function of productivity, we lose the ability to pump the brakes, the idea of doing something that doesn't add to the bottom line provokes stress and anxiety. It feels completely contrary to what we believe we want to achieve in life and dash we convince ourselves that downtime, like playing with our kids, hanging out with our partners, napping, tooling around in the garage, or going for a run, is a waste of precious time. Why sleep, when you can work? And aren't treadmill desks supposed to be a replacement for a long Sunday run anyway? I actually don't have anything against treadmill desks, as we all sit too much. Daring leadership modeling and supporting rest, play, and recovery The work of Dr. Stuart Brown, a psychiatrist, clinical researcher, and founder of the National Institute for Play, would argue that this lack of downtime, this lack of play, has a deleterious effect on our output in the office. In our desperate search for joy in our lives, we missed the memo, if we want to live a life of meaning and contribution, we have to become intentional about cultivating sleep and play. We have to let go of exhaustion, busyness, and productivity, as status symbols and measures of self-worth. We are impressing no one. What's more, according to Brown's research, play shapes our brain, fosters empathy, helps us navigate complex social groups, and is at the core of creativity and innovation. In some ways, it helps our overheated brain cool down. To weave this into office culture, leaders need to model appropriate boundaries by shutting off email at a reasonable time and focusing on themselves and their family. Do not celebrate people who work through the weekend, who brag that they were tethered to their computers over Christmas break. 
Ultimately, it's unsustainable behavior, and it has dangerous side effects, including burnout, depression, and anxiety. And it also creates a culture of workaholic competitiveness that's detrimental for everyone. As Stuart Brown says, the opposite of play is not work and dash the opposite of play is depression. 13. Armored leadership tolerating discrimination, echo chambers, and a fitting in culture. In my 2017 book, Braving the Wilderness, I share this definition of true belonging. True belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. True belonging doesn't require you to change who you are, it requires you to be who you are. The greatest barrier to true belonging is fitting in or changing who we are so we can be accepted. When we create a culture of fitting in and seeking approval at work, we are not only stifling individuality, we are inhibiting people's sense of true belonging. People desperately want to be part of something, and they want to experience profound connection with others, but they don't want to sacrifice their authenticity, freedom, or power to do it. Daring leadership cultivating a culture of belonging, inclusivity, and diverse perspectives only when diverse perspectives are included, respected, and valued can we start to get a full picture of the world who we serve, what they need, and how to successfully meet people where they are. Daring leaders fight for the inclusion of all people, opinions, and perspectives, because that makes us all better and stronger. That means having the courage to acknowledge our own privilege, and staying open to learning about our biases and blind spots. We also have to watch for favoritism and the development of cliques or in-slash-out groups. I often do focus groups with employees, and about half the time I hear people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s still talk about the cool kids at work and the popular table in the cafeteria. Sometimes the quality that defines the in-group is achievement or seniority, and sometimes it's identity. Daring leaders work to make sure people can be themselves and feel a sense of belonging. Previously mentioned daring leadership strategies that promote this sense of belonging include recognizing achievement, validating contribution, developing a system that includes power with, power to, and power within, and knowing your value. 14. Armored leadership collecting gold stars it is natural to want to be recognized for our achievements. Early in our careers, when we are individual contributors, collecting gold stars is fine m-particularly, if it's driven by healthy striving rather than perfectionism. It can, in fact, be essential for figuring out where we add the most value, when we are still at a stage where we are figuring out where we are strong, see hustling above. But once we transition into management or leadership roles, winning medals and stockpiling ribbons is no longer the goal, and it can be counterproductive to effective leadership. Daring leadership giving gold stars it sounds counterintuitive, but what got us promoted in the first place, and what made us indispensable to the organization, can get in the way of good leadership skills. Rewarding others rather than seeking to be rewarded is the only way to continue to grow within an organization, and to fully embody the mantle of daring leadership. In a daring leadership role, it's time to lift up our teams and help them shine. This is one of the most difficult hurdles of advancement, particularly for those of us who are used to hustling, or don't know exactly where we contribute value once the areas where we contributed value before are delegated to those coming up behind us. For this reason, it is essential that leadership be one of the explicit priorities for anyone in a role with direct reports and it cannot be attacked on assumption or done in our spare time. Bill Gentry talks about the need to flip the script when we find ourselves in a new role as a leader. His book Be the Boss Everyone Wants to Work For, a guide for new leaders is smart, practical skill building for those of us who are reluctant to give up our star collecting. 15. Armored leadership zigzagging and avoiding. When I was in third grade, we lived in New Orleans, and my parents took me and my brother fishing in a swamp. When we got there, the caretaker of the land said, If a gator comes at ya, run a zigzag pattern m-they're quick but they ain't good at back in turns. Well, we were only there five minutes, before a gator snapped off the end of my one's fishing pole. Mercifully, it never tried to chase us, had it, I assure you that we would have all zigzagged back to the car like crazy. 
Zigzagging is a metaphor for the energy we spend trying to dodge the bullets of vulnerability and dash, whether it's conflict, discomfort, confrontation, or the potential for shame, hurt, or criticism. I tend to zigzag in times of vulnerability and dash like, when I need to make a difficult call, I'll write the script, then I'll convince myself that the following morning is definitely better, then I'll draft an email, because that would clearly be superior to a call. I run back and forth, until I'm wiped out. And I still need to make the call. Bearing leadership talking straight and taking action we all know, that it saves a tremendous amount of time and mental capacity to just turn around and face whatever is at our heels head on. The other advantage of stepping into the discomfort? It's actually much less scary and intimidating to appraise the situation from a face-first position, rather than looking back over our shoulder, while running. In those moments, we need to stop and breathe m-bring clarity and awareness to what we are trying to avoid m-then get clear about what needs to be done to step into vulnerability. When we find ourselves zigzagging m-hiding out, pretending, avoiding, procrastinating, rationalizing, blaming, lying m-we need to remind ourselves that running is a huge energy suck and probably way outside our values. At some point, we have to turn toward vulnerability and make that call. A couple of years ago, I spoke at a global leadership event for Costco. I was sitting at a table in the front row watching their CEO, Craig Jelinek, take questions from Costco leaders. The questions were tough, and 90% of the time, Craig's answers were as tough or tougher. I've seen a lot of CEOs take invented questions, and more often than not, when the questions have hard answers, the leader zigzags like there's a gator in hot pursuit. You hear a lot of non-answers, great question. Let me give that some thought. Wow. Good idea. Someone write that down so we can do some discovery. Well, that's one way to frame the question ellipsis points but on this cold morning in Seattle, there was no zigzagging, just straight talk, yes. We did make that decision and here's why ellipsis points no. We are not going this direction and here's how we got to that decision ellipsis points I started thinking, damn. I have to get on stage after this open question and answer session, and these people are going to be bristly. When Craig was done, the audience leapt to their feet, clapping and cheering. I was shocked. I turned to the woman sitting next to me and said, that was really hard. He did not give them the answers they were looking for. Why is everyone cheering? She smiled and said, at Costco, we clap for the truth. We love the truth, because it's increasingly rare. So let me give you a truth here, in case you find yourself in the swamp, you should know, that humans can easily outrun alligators, which reach a max speed of 10 miles an hour and have no endurance. But they do have teeth. Lots of teeth. 16. Armored leadership leading from herd I've learned to live by the saying you can never get enough of what you don't need. It's not easy, especially, when it comes to BBC crime procedurals, chips and quizo, and approval. One of the patterns that I've observed in working with leaders is that many people lead from a place of hurt and smallness, and they use their position of power to try to fill that self-worth gap. But we just can't fill a self-worth gap by leading and using power over people, because that's not exactly what we need. To put it in simple terms, we work our shit out on other people, and we can never get enough of what it is we are after, because we are not addressing the real problem. In general, it's fair to say that we are all working our stuff out on people all day long. But when you add the leadership power differential, it gets dangerous. Leading from hurt behaviors include feeling no value from our partner or our children, so we double down on being seen as important at work by taking credit for ideas that aren't ours, staying in comparison mode, and always knowing instead of learning. The most common driver of the hurt that I've observed is from our first families. The first family stuff can look like seeking the approval and acceptance from colleagues that we never received from our parents. Also, if our parents' professional failures and disappointments shaped our upbringing, we can spend our careers trying to undo that pain. That often takes the shape of an insatiable appetite for recognition and success, of unproductive competition, and, on occasion, of having zero tolerance for risk. Identifying the source of the pain that's driving, how we lead, and how we show up, for other people is important, because returning to that place and doing that work is the only real fix. 
projecting the pain onto others places it where it doesn't belong and leads to serious trust violations. Our long, hard search for whatever it is that we need never ends and leaves a wake of disconnection. Daring leadership leading from heart let's go back to this sentence from section 2, leaders must either invest a reasonable amount of time attending to fears and feelings, or squander an unreasonable amount of time trying to manage ineffective and unproductive behavior. Well, leader, heal thyself. We also have to invest time attending to our own fears, feelings, and history or we'll find ourselves managing our own unproductive behaviors. As daring leaders, we have to stay curious about our own blind spots and how to pull those issues into view, and we need to commit to helping the people we serve find their blind spots in a way that's safe and supportive. Like all of us, most of the daring, transformational leaders I've worked with have overcome hurtful experiences and dashed from childhood illness and painful family histories to violence and trauma. Many are in the middle of deep struggles like marriages that are failing, children in rehab, or health crises. The difference between leading from hurt and leading from heart is not what you've experienced or are currently experiencing, it's what you deal with that pain and hurt. One of the most powerful examples of leading from heart that I've witnessed was Tirana Burke's response to Harvey Weinstein's arrest. Tirana is the senior director at Girls for Gender Equity and founder of the Me Too movement M-A movement to end sexual violence. In an interview with Trevor Noah, Tirana said, This is not really a moment. To, like, celebrate, how the mighty have fallen. She explained that the focus should be on healing the survivors and recognizing their courage. In a world full of rage and hate, Tirana, who is a survivor of sexual assault and has dedicated her career to helping other survivors, said, It doesn't bring me personal joy, this is not really what it is about. She explained, It's not about taking down powerful men, and it is not a woman's movement either M-that's another sort of misconception. It's a movement for survivors. Again, foreshadowing the work we will do together in the parts on learning to rise, when we own our hard stories and rumble with them, we can write a new ending M-an ending that includes how we are going to use what we've survived to be more compassionate and empathic. When we deny our stories of struggle, they own us. They own us, and they drive our behavior, emotions, thinking, and leading. Daring leadership is leading from heart, not hurt. Putting down the armor. Roosevelt's speech makes no mention of armor or weaponry and there are no shields glinting in the afternoon sun, no sabers, swords, or rifles. It would appear that the unarmored person in the arena is fighting with wits, bravery, and bare hands. Roosevelt is talking about grappling, person to person. That's where the credit goes, to the person whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails, while daring greatly. The credit goes to the person in the arena M-dash and the greatest arena in a world overrun with fear, criticism, and cynicism is vulnerability. As long as I've studied vulnerability, which dates back to my dissertation research in 1998, I will always think that the very best example of vulnerability is saying I love you first. Talk about taking off the armor. Just thinking about that moment takes my breath away. Like many of you, I've taken that risk and had the indescribable experience of hearing oh, my god. I love you too. And I've been on the shitty end of oh, thank you. But I think we are on different pages. People, people, people in those moments, it's hard to remember that the brokenhearted are the bravest among us, because they got past their egos and busted their hearts out of that prison so they could love. Yes, there's pain. And more dust and sweat and blood. It's hard. And when we don't understand that the willingness to risk hurt or failure is courage, or we don't have the skills to rumble and recover, it's easy to reach for the armor and weapons at the mere width of vulnerability. As our work around the world has taught us, the fear of vulnerability and all that comes with taking off the armor dash the fear of being judged or misunderstood, of making a mistake, being wrong, and experiencing shame dash is universal. The leaders interviewed for this book represent organizations across the globe, from film studios, tech companies, and accounting firms to military commands, schools, and community building organizations. How is it possible that the fear of taking off the armor is universal? People, people, people everywhere are just people, people, people.
A couple of years ago we held a training in London, and the participants came from more than 40 countries. As we waded into the topics of vulnerability and shame, one of the participants stood up and said, Our shared experiences of these emotions is so shocking. It's what we have in common more than anything else. The cultural messages and expectations that fuel feelings of vulnerability and even shame may be different, but the experiences themselves, as well as their ability to alter who we are, and how we show up, are universal. One powerful universal truth that has stood the test of global research, if shame and blame is our management style, or, if it's a pervasive cultural norm, we can't ask people to be vulnerable or brave. Shame can only rise to a certain level, before people have to armor up and sometimes disengage to stay safe. Another learning about the universal applicability of the daring leadership findings came from the people we interviewed who lead distributed global teams. They talked about the importance of having ongoing difficult and vulnerable conversations about the different cultural messages and expectations that corrode trust and psychological safety in a team, when they are not identified and discussed. One participant, who is a champion of daring leadership in her company leads a team of highly skilled analysts located all over the world who are diverse not only in terms of culture but also of age and gender identity. She said, one of the most important and most challenging parts of my job is surfacing what's getting in the way of our team's communication and performance. Last year, I noticed a pattern of our team in Hong Kong not participating in video conference meetings. They're major contributors, so I couldn't figure out why they were holding back. I reached out to them without our other colleagues on the line and said, we need to hear from you in these meetings. Not participating is not working. What can I do to support your participation? She told me there was a long pause before one man spoke up and said, we've asked many times to receive the agenda in advance of the meetings. When we get the agenda 10 minutes before the meeting starts, it feels disrespectful. If you really wanted our contribution, you would give us time to review and prepare. She explained that this type of frank conversation was a norm. These are almost always conversations about cultural norms and differences. No one wants to talk about these issues, because they are awkward and uncomfortable. But I know it's critically important, and it's my job, as a leader to push through the discomfort. It's never easy, but we are always grateful and stronger, when we are done. Digging into shame. If you want to see the ego go to DEFCON 1, get anywhere close to shame. What makes embracing vulnerability feel the most terrifying is how taking off the armor and exposing our hearts can open us up to experiencing shame. Our egos are willing to keep our hearts encased in armor, no matter the cost, if we can avoid feeling less than or unworthy of love and belonging. What the ego doesn't understand is that stunting our emotional growth and shutting down our vulnerability doesn't protect us from shame, disconnection, and isolation, it guarantees them. Let's look at how shame works, and why it can survive a healthy dose of empathy. Shame, which is often referred to as the master emotion by researchers, is the never good enough emotion. It can stalk us over time or wash over us in a second and dash either way, its power to make us feel we are not worthy of connection, belonging, or even love isn't matched in the realm of emotion. If we lean into vulnerability and resist the urge to armor up, and that leads to our feeling blamed, put down, ignored, or pushed away, shame can deal such a painful blow to our sense of self-worth that just the fear of it can send us running from the vulnerability rumble. I've written extensively about shame in all of my books, so I've gathered the important pieces from other books to give you a primer here. Before we dissect shame, let me walk you through a recent example. In July 2017, one month after I delivered the final manuscript for Braving the Wilderness to my publisher, I was three weeks into my pre-book tour boot camp. The week after the Rising Strong tour ended, I had sworn to myself that I would never embark on another book tour without getting into physical, mental, and spiritual shape. The new book was set for release on September 12th. I love being on the road and spending time with our incredible, wholehearted community. It's truly one of the great and expected gifts of my life. But if I'm not physically, mentally, and spiritually fit, the planes, hotels, and homesickness can crush me. Late night room service becomes my best friend, my coping skills start to wear thin, and, if I'm not careful, anxiety and loneliness can set in. 
The worst part of this is that, when I'm not in fighting shape, I collapse, when I get calm. I can't get out of bed for two or three days, and my kids come to my room and visit me like I'm in the hospital. At first, I thought the problems were driven by my introversion. I'm a 10 on a 10-point scale of introversion. I require a significant amount of alone time to function on all cylinders. But we started testing new travel strategies and I realized it's more than that. I've never been in a good place without working out and paying attention to my spiritual life. When I'm committed to these practices, it's magic. Well, magic, discipline, and a shit ton of hard work. But it's really, really solid. Three weeks into running, working out, rocking my keto plan, practicing my centering prayer, shopping for cute outfits to wear on the road, and setting master class level boundaries for the tour, things looked pretty good. On the 10th of July, I drove 20 minutes from my house to Wire Road Studios in the Houston Heights to record the audiobook for Braving the Wilderness. I love this studio and do all of my recording work there. I remember bouncing into the front office that morning and passing my favorite photo of Ian's hanging on the wall. I was in such a good mood, filled with possibility. I just wanted to give her photo a high five. H-Town girls bringing it. We were 10 minutes into the recording when the sound engineer's voice came over my headphones. I can hear your earrings. Can you take those off, please? I said, sure. Sorry about that. I hustled out of the sound booth toward a bench in the hall, where my purse was sitting. Walking fast and looking down to put the earring backing onto the loop that I had just pulled off my ear, I plowed, forward first, into a six-inch thick glass wall. I don't remember much after that, just waking up on the floor. And I remember the pain. I knocked myself unconscious for a full minute, and when I came to I was completely confused. I was crying and people were helping me, but I was out of it. Karen, my audiobook producer, insisted that she should drive me home or to the doctor's office, but I wanted to go back to reading. We were on a super tight schedule. I read for 30 more minutes, until I finally started crying again. I looked at Karen and said, I just can't. I don't know what's wrong. She offered to drive me home, but I assured her that I was fine. I drove to the office, but I don't remember a single minute of that drive. When I walked in, people gasped at the ping-pong ball-sized lump protruding from my forehead. Again, I assured everyone I was fine. I jumped on a Zoom call with my team. I was sitting next to Barrett and Suzanne in our office. Murdoch and Chaz were beaming in from New York and Austin. Apparently, a few minutes into the call, I said, I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand. Murdoch responded, Breen, are you sure you're okay? They tell me that my mood shifted and I snapped back, leave me alone. I'm just tired. Then I threw up in the trash can under Suzanne's desk, wiped the throw up off my chin, folded my arms on her desk, and went to sleep. I woke up at home. My team had called my husband, and he had left. His office to meet us at the house. He was asking me questions, and they tell me I was combative, frustrated, and crying. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't line up my thoughts or my vision. Steve kept asking me to look at him, but I remember it being so much work that it hurt. I could only look through him or past him. My sister was standing out of sight, scared and fighting back tears. I was diagnosed with a severe concussion. But, as familiar as that sounds, I would quickly learn that I had no idea what that meant. The day after the injury, my team sprang into action. They started cancelling upcoming speaking dates and shifting my calendar. I was pissed. I kept saying, I'm going to be fine in a week. These are huge events with contracts that have been in place for over a year. There's no reason to cancel. Murdoch was clear, you don't get a vote on this. I wouldn't relent. I couldn't. I was swallowed up by shame and fear. Researchers Tamara Ferguson, Heidi Eyre, and Michael Ashbaker have found that unwanted identity is one of the primary elicitors of shame. They explain that unwanted identities are characteristics that undermine our vision of our ideal selves. Sick, unreliable, and undependable are huge unwanted identities for me. As a fifth-generation German-American Texan, I grew up believing that illness is weakness. Not in other people and dash in other people it's human and okay and we should support and help. But in our family being sick is lazy, and if you're tough enough, you can walk off anything. 
Trust me, when I tell you that no one who lives by this loves it, but the shame is so enveloping that it's hard to break free. Unlearning this belief has been one of the hardest and most painful lessons of my life, and a battle I have to constantly refight, given the culture's reinforcement of it. But I will continue to fight and talk about it, because I do not want to pass this belief down to my children. It's a terrible way to live. Five days, after I hit my head, I couldn't function. I had a black eye down to my cheek and a huge bruised forehead. I couldn't read, watch TV, look at a computer screen, or be in bright light. It hurt to think. And the harder I tried to get back to normal, the worse it got. Every time I pushed, I regressed. I had wrestled away the shame self-talk about cancelling the events with some self-compassion and empathy from my team, but now I was feeling shame about losing control of what I believed made me me, my mind. What about my plan to get stronger for my book tour? What, if I don't get better? What, if I don't heal? What, if I've written my last book? What, if I can never do research again? Finally, Trey, a dear friend of our family, sat down with me and shared his 19-year-old wisdom. He laid it all out and held nothing back. He told me hard things that I didn't want to hear, but he did it with such tenderness and empathy that I just listened and cried. He was a rugby player in high school and had suffered his first concussion six months earlier, playing as a freshman in college. He said, I know this is scary and you can't even describe it to other people, but it's real. And the harder you fight it, the worse it's going to get and the longer it's going to take to heal. You can't win this fight by being tough. You can't fight your way back. You need time. This is real, and it's scary when your mind stops working. You're going to have to find a way to let go for the next few weeks. After a month, I started slowly returning to work. Every time I pushed a little too hard, there was a setback. I still couldn't work out, but I could find my way to the pantry to comfort eat. I gained 10 pounds m-just enough so that every outfit I bought for the tour no longer fit. Whatever good physical, mental, spiritual shape looked like, this was the opposite. The fear that I would never get back to my old self, and that trying to come back was permanently damaging my brain, turned into serious anxiety. I made an appointment to see the neuropsychologist who works with the Houston Texans and Houston Rockets and specializes in concussion management. Steve and I went together, and it was beyond helpful. I learned that the anticipatory anxiety I was experiencing about the fear that I would never feel like myself again was normal, and she gave me some strategies to deal with it. I also got the okay to go back to work and do 